Let's pray together. Lord God, open our hearts that you would um, transform us by your word. We come under your word. We don't come above it. We don't come alongside it. We come underneath it, for it's our authority in practice, in mind, in life, in all that we are and all that we do. And so we joyfully come under it now and pray that you would shape and form us by your word. In Jesus' name, amen. One more time, if you are able, I'm going to ask you to stand for the reading of God's word. This morning, continuing in the book of Romans, we are up to chapter 7, and we are looking at verses 7 through 12 this morning. Romans chapter 7. Verses 7 through 12, Paul says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I once was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive. And I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. So the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. You're driving down the road. And what do you notice behind you? A policeman. Ten and two. Here we go. I'm ready. See? What is your attitude toward the law? How do you react when you look in the rear view? All of a sudden, you go from that speed limit that shall go unmentioned to the actual speed limit, the one that is written on the sign. 17 years being here, I have no idea what stories I've told you from my life and what stories I haven't told you from my life. So if I'm repeating myself, please forgive me. But I remember an incident that happened to me a long time ago while I was pastoring in Oklahoma City. I was on my way to our Sunday evening community group, and I guess as usual, I was running late. And so we pull into the neighborhood, you know, you go off the main road, you go and you kind of go into the development where they are, and all of a sudden I come up to a stop sign. And yes, of course, I came to a full and complete stop, right? (laughs) See, I'm seeing who's listening and who's not, even in the introduction. I kind of rolled through the stop sign, and be honest, you've done the same thing, okay? I rolled, then all of a sudden, the gift of peripheral vision kicked in, and there he is with the sirens going. And I'm like, yeah, he's after me. And he pulls me over, where? Providence of God, right in front of the house where community group was being held this week. (laughs) And it happened to be the hosts had seven, seven little children all lined up at the window. Is pastor going to jail? The law is such a good thing, is it not? How do you feel? What is your attitude towards the law? Is it kind of a little bit ambivalent? Do you view it as a good thing all the time, even when you're being pulled over? And I don't think I got a warning. I think he wrote me the full board ticket that day. What is its purpose? Remember our context of this section of the letter to the Romans. What Paul is doing is he is explaining the gospel in a way that the people can understand 
And in their original context, what they understood as a paradigm for salvation was the exodus, being liberated out of bondage from slavery. That's Romans chapter 6. Coming before God at Mount Sinai to do what? To receive the law, equipped with the law and the presence of God, to walk in the wilderness on the way to the promised land. So immediately, if the gospel is according to the paradigm of a new exodus, Romans chapter 6 is you are liberated from slavery to sin. You're no longer under the law, you're under grace, you've died to the realm and the domain of sin. What comes next? Mount Sinai and what about the law? That's what Romans 7 is all about. So we began to look at this theme last week, looking and exploring verses 1 through 6, and we continue today, same theme, the law and the Christian, and the law and sin, and how they interrelate in verses 7 through 12. And we want to explore this theme from two perspectives in the text this morning. So if you're taking notes, I'm being very easy on you, a two-point Presbyterian sermon. Got it? Looking at the law, we're going to look at the goodness of the law, and we're going to look at the impotence of the law. And in a strange way, the goodness of the law is also revealed through its impotence. So the goodness of the law and the impotence of the law. Okay? Look at how the text begins. Verse 7 says, What then shall we say? You've heard this before, right? Paul seems to use this all the time, this diatribe style. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? Meganoito, by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin, for I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. That's verse 7. The end of the passage, he brackets it, which is why you know he is declaring definitively the goodness of the law. Because verse 12 ends, so the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. So now, what is going on here? Why does Paul feel the need to defend the goodness of the law? Why does Paul feel the need to say, the law is not to blame, exonerate the law? Well, he first of all explores this issue, not blaming the law, the goodness of the law, by exploring his own history. He's telling the story of his own experience. And I choose to go with those commentators who say that Paul is speaking autobiographically. In other words, he's speaking of himself but his story mirrors or reflects that of Adam and that of Israel, and we'll see that in a few minutes. And in terms of, again, a lot of ink spilled on this one, is Paul speaking from a Christian or a non-Christian perspective? Is he a Christian speaking of his life or a non-Christian? In verses 7 through 12, I think he is speaking as a Christian looking back on his non-Christian life. And then verses 14 to 25, I think he is speaking as a Christian, wrestling with, struggling with the ongoing struggle with sin. And we'll look more at that passage. That's where we're going next week. See, I'm just giving you, that's called a commercial or a tease. If I ever did radio work, that's, you're teasing after the commercial break. Because verses 14 to 25, that's next week. But the evidence for this, to put it very sim simply, verses 7 through 12, if you look at the tenses of the verbs, they're all in the past tense. The law had done this. this everything, I learned this. Everything's in the past tense. So he's a Christian speaking retrospectively on his past unregenerate non-Christian life, where from verse 14 onward, all the verbs are in the present tense. And I happen to agree with Tim Keller, and not just because he was my faculty advisor, but I 
happen to think he's a smart guy, and a lot of other people agree with him, that basically say the natural reading is that in verse 14 to 25, Paul is describing his ongoing struggle with sin in which he refuses to surrender. Now, even while saying that, I'm not going to be overly dogmatic about that because there are really, really smart people. Ask Rick later how smart the people are who are on different sides of this issue. I just told you where I come down. But here, verses 7 to 12, what is the context? Why is Paul defending the goodness of the law? Well, look again with me at verse 7, where he uses again this diatribe style, asking whether the law is sinful. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. He's asking that because in the previous verse, or verses, verse 5 specifically, see, whenever you say, what then shall we say? That is a response. And it's a response to what he said in verse 5 when he said, while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. That statement, that while we were living in our flesh, our sinful pleasures helped out, pushed forward, given a oomph by the law, leads to the natural question, is the law then bad? Is the law sinful? And Paul is saying, no way. Much like he's done throughout this section, chapter 5, verse 20, where he says, where sin abounds, grace superabounds, leads to the question of chapter 6, verse 1. Well, if when we sin, grace superabounds, that must mean I should sin more, right? So that grace may increase. Paul goes, uh-uh, doesn't work that way. Verse 14, he says, We are not under law, but under grace, leads to the question of verse 15. Well, what shall we say then? Does not being under law, but under grace, lead one to continue in sin? And again, he says, by no means. So here's Paul using his own history, his own story, his own confrontation with the law, specifically the Tenth Commandment, the one prohibiting covenant, uh, coveting, not covenant, coveting, to explore this issue. And Paul then presents his story as a paradigm for the whole human race. His story mirrors or recapitulates that of Adam and Israel. And I love how the commentator Thomas Schreiner puts it. He sums it up so well when he says, if desires to sin are aroused by the law so that the law actually fosters and promotes sin, the goodness of the law is certainly called into question. Paul defends then the goodness of the law even though it is intimately involved with the tyranny of sin. So Paul's position is quite simple. The law is good. The law is holy. The law reveals the will of God. The law reveals the character of God. It is altogether righteous, but it does not produce the righteousness of life. It does not transform. It does not lead one to overcome sin. In other words, it doesn't produce the transformation of life that it promises. And it does promise life if you keep it. Look with me at verse 10. The very commandment that promised life, and it does, if you can happen to be successful enough to keep the law completely in its entirety, never wavering in thought, word, and deed, once in your life, you will live. That still stands. So it promises life, 
But what does it do? Not because of any fault in law, but because of our inherent weakness, the weakness of our flesh, our incapacity, our sin, it proves to be death. Now, I mentioned earlier that Paul is sharing from his story, his own confrontation with coveting, and we'll get to that in a second. But this is parallel to the story of both Israel and Adam. For example, Israel in Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5, says, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. For I am the Lord. That's Leviticus 18, verse 5. Paul is giving a parallel with Israel's history. It also provides a parallel with Adam. For even though Adam didn't have formally the law of Moses, he did have the revelation of God. He did have the commandment of God in the garden. Genesis chapter 2. <coughs> Excuse me. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now, first of all, part of the law or the command of God being good, righteous, and holy. I want you to notice even, even here in this command how much grace is in the command. Notice the beginning of the command God gives to Adam. The Lord God commanded the man saying, take a look around you. Do you see the abundance of trees here? Do you see the wonder of creation? Do you see the beauty and the majesty and the splendor of it all? Do you see how awesome and great it is? You may surely eat of every tree of the garden. It's amazing if Adam's heart would have thought about that. God's law, God's command promises abundance. Happiness comes through obedience. He says, but... And again, even in this one command, there's grace in it because God is protecting Adam from something. He says, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what is he protecting Adam from? Some knowledge. He doesn't want Adam to know everything. Very specifically, he doesn't want Adam to know about this distinction between good and evil. He's protecting of it. So he says, but of this tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for the, in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So the command of God to Adam promises life to those who keep it, death to those who break it. The law of Moses given to the nation of Israel promises life to those who keep it, death to those who break it. And as one commentator Speaking of Paul, he's speaking of his personal history. He's speaking of his autobiography, but he's a faithful Jewish man. Remember, that's his context. That's his history. So that's the story he's telling. So he's familiar with Adam and Israel. And as one commentator put it, already in the Old Testament, a parallel emerges between Israel, given the law and promised the land, and Adam and Eve placed in the garden and given a commandment with a warning attached. To break this means death. The death in question for Adam and Eve involved banishment from the garden, just as Israel's punishment ended in exile from their land. But this was, and this is the important part, this was not the fault of the commandment given in the garden or of the law given to Israel. It was the result of sin. 
Sin, in short, grabbed its opportunity on both occasions. Paul is saying the same thing happened with me. The fault is not with the law. The fault is not with the commandment. Paul is defending his teaching of the gospel from the charge that it contradicts the law. He is affirming the goodness of the law. Next, he's also affirming the impotence of the law. The latter part of verse 7 says, Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, You shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Now look at this. What does Paul teach here from his own story? Tim Keller puts it well. He says that first, what the main purpose of the law is, is to show us the character of sin. It says, yet if, I had not, if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin. The law reveals what sin is. It gives us an anatomy of sin. It defines sin. It gives us the character of sin. Dick Kaufman, who worked for years, PCA pastor who worked for years with Tim Keller, used to say that one way to picture the law, a great way to picture it, is it is as a whip. It is always whipping us, defining sin for us. Now, why does Paul use the example of coveting? He says, I would not have known what it is to covet, what coveting really meant if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Thomas Schreiner again says here that the prohibition against coveting, the 10th commandment, summarizes all the commandments. He writes, Paul concentrated on the prohibition against coveting because this is the only commandment that explicitly refers to the desires of one's heart rather than merely to outward actions. See, what is coveting? Coveting is desiring something more than or ahead of God or contrary to God's will. That's why Paul in both Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3 likens coveting to idolatry. Colossians chapter 3 verse 5, Paul says, Put to death therefore what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. Schreiner goes on to say, he says, those whose lives are filled with coveting are guilty of the fundamental sin. By desiring what is forbidden, they thereby show that they treasure and delight in someone or something more than they delight in the one true God. God is not their greatest treasure or pleasure, and thus they can scarcely claim to be true worshipers of him. Those who covet have another God than the one true God who created the world. Thus, coveting should be understood as the fundamental sin. And it isn't interesting that the first commandment or the first two commandments and the tenth commandment both speak, in a sense, against loving anything more than God, wanting or desiring anything more than God. And so what is Paul saying? The law against coveting defined sin for Paul, but it didn't help him be transformed from sin. In fact, 
What it did was to actually stir up, almost like when, you ever notice when we get a storm or a hurricane, what does it do? It stirs up all the dust and grass and everything. So you end up like me, coughing for two months afterwards. He's saying, the law, rather than overcoming or helping me be transformed, it actually reveals the sin in my heart. Verse 8 says, for apart from the law, sin lies dead. Now, what does he mean by that? Tim Keller writes, he says, this statement indicates that when the commandment of God comes to us, it actually aggravates and stirs up sin in our hearts, showing us not just what sin is in general, but how sin resides within us. So verse 9, Paul says, I was once alive apart from the law. But when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Keller says Paul is here describing a situation in which he found that the more he tried to avoid coveting, the more the coveting and envy grew. Now look at what he's saying. He's saying in verse 5 he says the law arouses our sinful passions. Here in verses 8 and 9 he's saying when the commandment came, sin came alive. It sprang to life, seizing the opportunity. It grabbed hold of me. How does it do this? And why does it do this? Well, again, one commentator says the basic answer is that there is a perversity, a natural perversity about our hearts. And he defines perversity as a desire to do something for no other reason than because it is forbidden. It is a joy in wrongdoing for its own sake. So Paul's point here is until the command against an evil thing comes to us, we may feel a little urged to do it anyway. But when we hear the command, our native perversity that resides in our hearts gets stirred up and may take over. It's kind of like the old game show, was it Let's Make a Deal that had the three curtains, curtain one, two, and three? If curtain one says... Come on in. And curtain two says, come on in. And curtain three says, forbidden. I don't know about you, but all of a sudden three becomes my favorite number. I'm headed right towards curtain. You don't tell me curtain three is forbidden. Like curtain one and curtain two, it's kind of like, oh, I have a little urge to go in there. Tell me forbidden. All of a sudden, the perversity of the heart is grabbing hold of it. See, the law is showing us exactly what sin is. It's dissecting sin for us. It's not that sin didn't exist prior to the law. Of course it did. There was death. But the law breaks it down for us. The law dissects it and gives us an anatomy of it. I think nobody puts this kind of perversity of heart as vividly as St. Augustine in his Confessions. And let me tell you, if you've never read St. Augustine's Confessions, I would highly recommend them to you. They are tremendous devotional literature. Listen to this story by St. Augustine from book two of his Confessions, sharing from his own experience. Augustine writes, In a garden nearby to our vineyard, there was a pear tree, loaded with fruit that was desirable, neither in appearance nor in taste. Late one night, a group of very bad youngsters set out to shake down and rob this tree. We, and notice he says we, so he's in the part of these very bad youngsters. He says, we took great loads of fruit from it, not for our own eating, but rather to throw it to the pigs. We did this to do what pleased us. 
for the reason it was forbidden. For I stole a thing of which I had plenty of my own, of much better quality, that tasted better, nor did I wish to enjoy the thing which I desired to gain, but rather to enjoy the actual theft for theft's own sake. And then he's praying to God. And he says, In a perverse way, all men imitate you who put themselves far from you. What therefore did I love in that theft of mine? In what manner did I perversely or viciously imitate my Lord? Did it please me to do with impunity things bearing a shadowy likeness of your omnipotence? Behold how your servant flees from his Lord and follows after a shadow. Could a thing give pleasure which was done for no other reason but because it was unlawful? Do you hear what Augustine is confessing and praying to the Lord? That when we sin, the motive underneath the sin is to play God. To be sovereign over our own life. To, in a shadowy, shadowy way, imitate His omnipotence. To take charge of our life and the world. He says we're um, imitating the Lord's omnipotence. And so verse 9, Paul says, I was once alive apart from the law. Of course, he's aware that he had sinned before. But he says, when the commandment came, sin sprang to life, came alive, and I died. Now, friends, that reference to I died is where the goodness and the good purpose of the law is revealed in and through its impotence. Because again, as Dr. Keller says, rather, Paul finally realized that he was dead, that he was condemned, lost, because of his complete failure and inability to keep the law. He died to himself. He came to see the impotence of the law to transform him. He came to see the impotence of the law for salvation. And so as Leon Morris in his commentary on Romans writes, when the commandment came, I killed forever the proud Pharisee, thanking God that he was not as other men and sure of his merits before God. It killed off the happy sinner, for it showed him the seriousness, not so much of sin in general as of his own personal sin. The coming of the law in that sense always kills off our cheerful assumption of innocence. We see ourselves for what we really are, sinners, and we die. It marks the end of self-confidence, self-satisfaction, self-reliance. It is death. And friends, that death is a good thing because it is only through that death that you can come to life. It is only through dying to yourself. Coming to the end of yourself, the end of your self-righteousness, the end of your self-reliance, the end of your self-sufficiency, the end of your self-innocence, the end of your self-satisfaction, that you can come to the end of yourself and flee to Christ. It is much like Isaiah in the temple when he said, woe is me for I am lost. He was pronouncing a curse on himself and he was dying to himself so that with the tongs from the altar... The hot coal that purifies from fire can touch his lips. And the Lord can say, see, your guilt, your sin is atoned for. 
and I set you free. As long as you're trying to live in your own strength, by your own merits, for your own, in your own reliance and sufficiency, you are staying alive and you don't need Christ. The law shows you your need for Christ. That's why it's a whip driving you from Christ. The law brings you to the end of yourself. And this is where the impotence of the law is the best possible news there can be. You come to the end of yourself that you cannot save yourself so that you cry out as Paul does later in this chapter, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body to death? Praise be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Oh my friends, Receive the good news of coming to the end of yourself. In a very paradoxical way, give up trying. Quit striving and come to Christ. Oh, that we would be a church that desperately flies to Jesus. And as we will see next week, this is not just how to become a Christian. This is what marks every day and every hour of your Christian life. Your own unself-sufficiency and flying to Jesus Christ. Let's pray. God, all I can say is, God, help us. Save me, a wretched sinner. Bring me to the end of myself that I would fly to Christ always. For I need you so desperately. This poor church is led by the chief of sinners. Lord, forgive me for my own self-sufficiency and self-reliance. And Lord, I pray that we would look for our own, the log in our eyes first, before we ever would dare to think we could see the tiny little specks, the little piece of dust in other people's eyes. Lord God, thank you for the law. Thank you. For the law of God, it is good. It reveals your heart. It reveals your ways. It reveals your beauty and your excellence. But thank you for the law's impotence. That we see the goodness of the law in and through its impotence. Praise be to God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.